Well, now that we are one Sunday after Christmas, we want to look at one of the most dramatic events that occurred in the life of the young baby Jesus. And this is from the passage I just read in Matthew chapter 2. We'll look at pieces of this as we go along. Um, do we have that on the slide? Let's go ahead and put it up. And so, and then we'll, as we follow through on this, we'll see pieces of it. Um, last week in the Christmas service, I spoke about how the prophets of old told that when the Messiah comes, everything will change. That was actually the theme of our Christmas Eve and Christmas service. And that that change would begin with the birth of Jesus and would be completed when he comes again. We are now in what is known as the age of the church between the first and the second coming of Jesus. But how do we really know that the promised change that the prophets spoke of is intended for us, specifically for us? Or how can we be sure that we have access to everything that was promised through Jesus? Today's passage in Matthew, I think, helps us with those questions because it gives us a very clear sense of what life was like for the Holy Family, for Joseph, for Mary, for the baby Jesus. And we want to start with the context there and the three prophetic messages that are embedded in this Matthew passage. There are three different Old Testament prophetic statements that Matthew uh, mentions to us. But first, let's talk about the setting. What is the, the historical setting for these events in the, the life of the baby Jesus? Joseph, Mary, and Jesus had remained for a time in Bethlehem after Jesus was born, perhaps as much as two years, since we know that uh, this passage tells us that Herod was intent on killing all of the baby boys in the Bethlehem area that were two years or younger. So this suggests, since it says he knows when Jesus was supposed to have been born, that perhaps it had been as much as two years. During that time, uh, the Holy Family had been visited by the Magi, wise men from the east, who had come to Bethlehem after asking Herod, that uh, this is King Herod the Great, there are several Herods of course in this time, but King Herod the Great, for directions as to where they can find this newborn King of the Jews. Now Herod's secret goal, of course, was to find and kill the Christ child, to prevent any challenges to his power as ruler over this land. So he told the Magi where they could find the baby Jesus based upon the old prophecies in Bethlehem. And he expected and asked them to return to him after they found the baby Jesus and let him know so he pretended he could go and worship this Christ child when in fact he just wanted to kill him. But the Magi were warned in a dream not to return to King Herod and so they took another route home. And now Herod, realizing that he's been bamboozled by the Magi, is determined to find the child by other means so that he can kill him. That was until an angel appears to Joseph in a dream telling him of the danger from Herod and that Joseph and Mary and the baby should immediately flee into Egypt. Now some background on this. Uh, Egypt was outside Herod's area of control. It was not controlled by Rome at that point. Rome had given the uh, stamp of approval on Herod's kingship. And at this point, Egypt was a safe place from Herod. And so Egypt had always been a safe place for the Israelites. number of times in the Bible we have cases where the Israelites go down into Egypt in times of trouble. Of course we have the case where um, Jacob and his entire clan fled to Egypt after Joseph had been there for a while. 
They fled famine in order to be able to find grain there. At various other times, we read of Old Testament prophets, including Jeremiah and Uriah, fleeing into Egypt for refuge. So in today's passage, we have the the specific quote from Hosea 11.1 that says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. A prophecy that the Son of God would be called up out of Egypt. Now, in Hosea, this reference is, first of all, a reference to the Exodus, where the people of God, the Hebrew people, were called up out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. But Matthew is inspired by the Holy Spirit to see this also as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Jesus, in Mary and Joseph, having to flee into and then later return from Egypt. The appropriateness of that is that prior to Jesus, the great sign of God's redemptive love and power to his people, the Jews, had been the Exodus event, the bringing them up out of slavery in Egypt. So that after that time, the Jews, when they referred to God, they they often called him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought us up out of captivity in the land of Egypt. That was the first great act of redemption. And now the second great act of redemption, giving his son to save his people, also involves coming up out of Egypt. It will be out of Egypt that Jesus returns to the Holy Land to release the people from their captivity, their captivity to sin at this time. Now the second prophecy that is found here is in verses 17 and 18, which says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew also knows this passage from Jeremiah 31:15 is a prophecy about Herod's willingness to kill all of the male children in the vicinity where Jesus was born in order to try to kill this newborn king. Now, Herod's ruthlessness was legendary. At various times, Herod the Great murdered his wife, his three sons, his mother-in-law, two brothers-in-law, an uncle, and many others, including the babies in and around Bethlehem, to keep his power. In that regard, he certainly wasn't so great as Herod the Great. In addition to that, Herod had killed rabbis and their students for tearing down the Roman eagle that he mounted over the temple gate in Jerusalem. He murdered 45 different members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council in Jerusalem. And he gave orders, as he was ill and approaching death, he gave orders that at the moment of his death, thousands of the most important and beloved people in his kingdom were to be executed by his soldiers to ensure that everyone would mourn at his death. That was an order that his soldiers refused to obey after Herod's death. Now, Ramah, which is referred to here, is a town about five miles north of Jerusalem. It was through Ramah that the Israelites had been forced to travel as they were taken off into exile into Babylon. So it had become a symbol of grief to the Israelites, of God's punishment of them. It was also the place where Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife, died giving birth to Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin, while the family was on their way to Bethlehem. So here you have two distinct symbols of grief and mourning for the Jewish people, which the very Jewish Matthew, Matthew is the most Jewish of all of, uh, in terms of the style of his writing, the most Jewish of all of the gospel writers. And he would have understood the importance of this to the Jewish people. Again, Matthew is inspired by the Holy Spirit to draw a connection between the prophetic utterances from Israel's past 
and these events in the life of the Savior, Jesus, when the jealous and power-hungry Herod would kill innocent children in an attempt to get get rid of the one male child who would, the prophecies foretold, supplant him as king of the Jews. And then there is a third prophetic reference in verses 22 and 23 that has to do with Joseph and the Holy Family. And as the angel informs them that Herod has died, having warned them in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth so that what was fulfilled was what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now after the death of Herod the Great, his kingdom was divided up into four parts. They're actually, uh, the, the Romans had controlled it overall. Herod's three surviving sons were giving large portions. One of his sons, Archelaus, was, if possible, an even worse tyrant than Herod. Archelaus was so bad that while the people had endured the evil of Herod the Great for 33 years until his death, after 10 years, Archelaus was so bad that the Romans stepped in and deposed him and put someone else in his place. Which is why by the time Jesus is an adult, you have a Roman governor of that area rather than one of Herod's descendants. But Archelaus ruled only the southern region of Judea. One of his more mild-mannered brothers actually ruled north in Galilee, which included Joseph and Mary's original hometown of Nazareth. So that's why Joseph, Mary, and Jesus could retreat to Nazareth after being warned not to go back to Judea because of Archelaus. Describing Jesus as becoming a Nazarene, Matthew is referring to several prophetic references. Psalm 22.6, Isaiah 53.3, which say that the Messiah would be despised since in that day, Nazarene was synonymous with being despised. You may remember when Jesus first began his ministry, Philip and Nathaniel are talking, and Philip tells Nathaniel that the Messiah, Jesus, comes from Nazareth. And in John 1, Nathaniel says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? But the most important message from all of this, I think we want to draw in this gospel passage for today, is what I would call the universality of Jesus. And all these things feed into that. You will remember when the, what the angel said when he appeared to the shepherds in Luke 2. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, I've been involved in marketing for many, many years, as has my wife. And we will tell you that if you try to reach equally all segments of the population, you're almost invariably going to fail. Because the kind of messaging, the kind of relationship you want to have with different groups of people need to necessarily be different in order for them to be able to respond. But Jesus was to be the savior of the whole world. And in that sense, in order for him to be the savior of the world, contrary to good marketing sense, he had to be able to relate to the whole world. And in fact, he did. And if you think about his life, especially his early life, in order to relate to poor people, which is most of the people in the world, of course, both in Jesus' time and today, Jesus was born poor. In the most humble of circumstances imaginable in what amounted to a backwater corner of the Roman Empire. If you had to pick the least likely place for a a ruler to be born in, in all of the Roman Empire, Israel would have been it. 
because it was considered of no consequence. If you got sent there as an administrator, it must be some sort of punishment because it was not where people wanted to be. It's also true that Jesus was born to an unwed mother. Have you ever thought about that? His stepfather was a blue-collar worker. He worked with his hands. Joseph was a carpenter, a man who earned a living building things. And in those days, a carpenter cut his own trees. He made his own timber before he actually built the furniture. You didn't just run off to Home Depot and buy what you needed for your next project, like I do. Um, Also, we have to realize that the very first visitors that Jesus, the infant Jesus, received were Jewish shepherds. Now, shepherding was common working folk labor. It was not a position with any prestige. It would be common to dock, or similar to dock workers or sanitation workers today. Only the poorest of the poor who didn't have any upward mobility or opportunity would work as shepherds. Frequently, there were children who did that. So Jesus was one with and he could appeal to the poor, the common everyday folk of the world. Born of an unwed mother, later on to be part of a single parent family because at some point, we don't know when, Joseph dies. And Mary is left with her children and so a single parent family. They were, in fact, refugees. They had to flee their own home and country to go into a foreign land. In so many ways, the story of Jesus applies to and appeals to so many of the people who struggle in our world. But then you have to realize that because Jesus was to appeal to everyone, he also was visited by the Gentile Magi. They were not Jewish. They were wise men from the East, and they were very wealthy. The gifts that they brought to Jesus were very expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh, two spices that are made from tree sap, basically, were more expensive than gold. Frankincense in that day cost more than its own weight in gold. So these were very, very valuable things. So the rich related to Jesus as well and recognized him as their savior. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph became refugees when they traveled 350 miles or so on foot to Egypt. They endured the heat of the desert during the day and the cold of the desert at night, the danger of bandits, the constant fear of being caught by Herod to enter a land they did not know, where they were outsiders and foreigners. You probably have some idea, especially from the first few weeks that you moved here, what it's like to be an outsider and a foreigner, to not speak the local language, to not know where to find things, how to take care of yourself. It's all, that's the reason the community is so important for us, is because that's how you find out all of this. But Jesus and his family were exactly that. They were outsiders, and they were outsiders not because they chose to be there, but because they had to be. They were refugees. And then later on, Jesus, of course, would know what it was like to be betrayed by his friends, deserted by them, to suffer devastating pain, and to die. This is why the Hebrews passage that Lynn read this morning talks about the fact that that our Savior experienced all of the pain that we experienced. And we will restate that again in the words of institution in our communion. You see, in order to be Savior of the whole world, to be the good news to all people that the angels called him, Jesus had to be an everyman. Are you familiar with that concept? I've used it before, I think, in sermons. 
Every man is a term that's used in literature and drama to refer a created character to whom the audience or the reader is supposed to be able to easily identify, to relate to. And then that everyman character is often placed in extraordinary circumstances, which gives the reader or the audience the ability to relate to what that must have been like. Well, Jesus can be the savior of the whole world because Jesus is quite literally the everyman savior, the one to whom all of us can relate no matter what our circumstance. The poor can relate to Jesus because he was poor from a poor family with an unwed mother and a blue-collar working stepfather. The wealthy and the wise can relate to Jesus because he was sought out and worshipped by the wealthy and wise. The refugees, the foreigners, the outsiders, and the persecuted can relate to Jesus because, as today's passage tells us, Jesus and his family were persecuted and forced to become refugees and foreigners. Those who have lost a loved one, a family member, can relate to Jesus because Jesus and Mary at some point lost Joseph. Those who have been betrayed, rejected, and deserted, those who have suffered pain and sorrow, those who face death, especially an unjust death, For all of us, Jesus is the Savior, the only Savior to whom everyone can relate. He alone, by God's good and loving providence, experienced everything so that he could be the one to whom we can turn when we are hurt and lost and alone. And whatever our circumstance, Jesus can relate to that. Again, as the book of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So my brothers and sisters, the next time you are in pain, or alone, or an outsider, or a foreigner, the next time you feel humbled, betrayed, threatened, or persecuted, the next time you are suffering or sorrowing, Remember that from the moment of his birth, through his childhood and into his adulthood, all the way to the point of his death, through the passion and the cross, Jesus knew all of the same trials and pains and sorrows that you are experiencing. And when you are suffering and you turn to God and say, God, don't you know how hard this is? Don't you know how much this hurts? Don't you care? When you ask those questions, remember that God sent his son as a helpless baby, threatened by rulers and despots of his day, forced to run away with his family to become refugees so that Jesus would experience everything that we've been through, yet without sin. Did you ever wonder why all those things happened to Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus? I believe it is so that Jesus could know exactly what we go through. As Isaiah the prophet wrote 700 years before Jesus' birth, in the 53rd chapter of his book, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the everyman Savior. Amen.